Hear now the word of the Lord. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but the love but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone, and thank you, praise team. Always uh, encouraging to hear your songwriting skill and looking forward to, I think, more songs um, to lead us in congregational singing. Would you join me as we continue to worship, as we pray? Lord God, would you open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit that the scriptures as read and now, as your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today and respond to you in love through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Growing up in church, there are areas in life that's kind of gray, where Bible is not so clear in defining as right and as wrong. In my early adolescence, uh, I think some of those areas include things like, should you go to a movie, or should you play cards? Can you go to a dance? Can you listen to rock music or pop music? Can you read certain fantasy books? Uh, Or can you go out to eat on Sunday or go shopping? Now, as an adult, maybe... Um, Things might include things like, should a Christian drink alcohol or smoke a cigar or a pipe, maybe like Spurgeon did? How do you decide when Bible isn't crystal clear in these gray areas? I mean, after all, as Christians, are we not under law anymore? Now, some things might be all right in and of itself, but if you do them, we know that it could wound someone else who thinks it is wrong. So as Christians, within our liberty, do we do whatever we want, no matter how it may or may not affect those around us? How do we decide? How should members of a gospel-shaping community, as us here, exercise our Christian liberties and privileges? Now, the world has its own way of understanding rights, privileges, and liberties, especially, you know, um, as those of us living in this country exercising our rights and civil duties a couple of weeks ago. We live in a day and age where individual rights is something that's held on to. And self-expression, self-actualization are often deemed as ultimate good. And anything that hinders that, we hear that it's bad, inherently bad. We come to today's passage after um, Pastor Eugene finished preaching through chapter 7. 
the first set of matters that the, the Corinthian church sought out response from Apostle Paul. And chapter 7, we, we learned about the biblical understanding of marriage and biblical understanding of singleness, both as beautiful, good gifts from God. Now, chapter 7 through 14 actually address, as we saw in the beginning of chapter 7, these, are, these chapters concern the matters which you wrote. Um, chapters 8 through 10, we're starting chapter 8 today, begins to start on a subject matter that probably most of us are very unaccustomed to, really foreign concept of this thing called food offered to idols. Unless you've been abroad or you lived a significant part of your life where you, you've seen that, this seems really kind of arcane. It's like, how does this apply to us? Chapter 11 deals with Lord's table and worship, and chapter 12 through 14 deals with the question of spiritual gifts. But today and next week, we're going to go through chapter 8, and today is kind of the introduction. We're just going to look at the first three verses and the rest of the chapter next week. So let me give a little bit of an intro on this whole thing about food offered to idols, okay? So there's a private sacrifice back in the New Testament time, especially in the Hellenic cities like Corinth, um, and there's a private, excuse me, public sacrifice. So let's start with the uh, private sacrifice. So if an animal is brought in a private sacrifice, um, it will be divided into three parts. First um, will be the token part that will be burnt on the altar for their god or gods. Second will be a set side that will be the part that's uh, portioned for the priest. So you burn some fat part and other innards to their god, and edible parts are given to the priest who's performing the ritual, and the one who brings the meat to be offered is given the rest to consume. Now, sometimes this private sacrifice is happening at homes and sometimes in temples of a particular god. Now, you shift to public sacrifices, and this sort of things happen in festivals, um, and in games, like for example, the Isthmian uh, uh, game where Apostle Paul probably made tents um, to make his ends meet. And just like the prior in a private, in public sacrifices, um, again, a particular uh, part will be burnt unto their God. And again, like the previous, uh, the priest received their section, um, portion. And then, since it's a public sacrifice, uh, a big part of it will be given to the magistrates um, who work for the government. And whatever is not consumed or allotted or distributed, that will be given or to the shops uh, or the markets. So if you were to go out and buy meat, chances are you, that meat probably came from some sort of a temple that had gone through this uh, religious rite. People back in those days, unlike today, didn't compartmentalize their life from religious, social, and economic. It was all kind of merged together. And Corinthian Christians um, who sought social advancement especially were challenged as they thought about this matter. Um, do you participate in this sort of um, food that's been offered to idols? And um, 
in addition to that kind of complexities involved in that culture, there was another element. Um, back in those days, people believed that, you know, um, food were contained by evil spirits and demons, and people were afraid that if they would eat certain food, these evil spirits or demons would be caught by the individual. So what they would do in order for these evil uh, spirits or demons to not to get on you, they would make sure that um, a god of their choice was, um, the food was brought to them um, with the hope that these evil spirits would be basically uh, ridden from the food so that they wouldn't be um, affected by these evil spirits. So you, you have these two kind of things playing if you were living in um, ancient time. One, um, to gain favor with their god with a small g, and two, to avoid contamination from these evil spirits or demons, and thus offering these um, sacrifices. So the question as a Christian, whether you, you've grown up and you've been a Christian for a while, or your recent Christian convert living in Corinth, especially those who just recently converted, how, do you consume this kind of food? Do you eat this knowing that these things have happened to them? If you and I live in first century Corinth, and our non-Christian friends would have invited us home and offered food and meat that probably was purchased from these kind of temple markets. You would have been invited to weddings, to different kind of life happenings, healings that's associated with different kind of idols um, that are um, mentioned in the past here. And especially as a wealthy Corinthian, you would, be, you would have been invited to different kind of occasions and, um, you know, to fulfill their professional as well as public duties um, in, in networking and meeting, attending these things, to refuse a meal when it's offered would have been an insult to the host. In contrast to the wealthier uh, people who would be consuming meat on more of a regular basis, if you are a, a poor uh, Corinthian, meat wasn't something that you ate much at all. You would at best eat meat when it's distributed during religious festivals. And if you are a poor Corinthian, and the vast majority were, um, meat would be more intricately connected with religious festivals because it was rare and it affected their, uh, them the most, probably. Um, there are two groups of people in Corinth. You have the libertines who were really progressive or permissive. You had the legalists who were really restrictive. Um, one party focused on freedom, the other on morality. The legalists would say, do what the law says. It's clear what you can do and what you can't do. And the libertines would respond by saying, you know what? We know better. Be free. Do. And in today's passage, we are seeing Apostle Paul directly addressing the, the libertines, the permissive, the party. And, and these are part of 
those who deem themselves as strong in contrast to the weak. So within the libertine and the legalist, um, within the legalist, there were those who were weak. And the weak people felt that they didn't feel so free or so bold in uh, partaking in this kind of food. They were recent converts, and their past association with sacrificial food and the pagan rites made it just really hard on their conscience. Um, so eating meat not only was uncommon for them, and because of all that connection, um, it, it really compromised their conscience when they were urged by those who were stronger. Um, the weak violated their own consciences as they ate idle food um, because they weren't really convinced in their uh, mind and their hearts. So in contrast to the, the weak who made up uh, part of the, uh, the legalist group, the libertines, uh, within the libertines, there were the strong. They possessed this mm, technically correct understanding of God. They knew that you know, consuming idol food was really a matter of indifference. Um, however, what they failed was that they were not empathetic toward those who had weak consciences. They didn't love them. They, in fact, used their knowledge to bully these younger brothers and sisters to do things that prevented their conscience from truly receiving those things. Now, previous chapter, like chapter 6, verse 9, we know that Apostle Paul mentioned with this kind of uncompromising attitude toward idolatry, he, he is not for it, and he even cites that idolaters among all the other peoples will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what can a Christian do? Um, how does a Christian respond to food offered to idols? I mentioned it already, but there are three, three ways, three circumstances that you know, Christians are dealing with here. The first one is idol feasts. Do, does a Christian go to these temple feasts where um, offerings are made to these idols and eat the meat? Second, um, can a Christian who's invited by a non-Christian eat the food that's offered? And third, can a Christian go out to a market and buy meat and be free to eat and consume without being stricken in his conscience? Now remember, these are first-generation Christians. They lived probably majority of their life as pagan Corinthians, infused in this kind of pagan religious civil social culture. And they're really wrestling and having a hard time. And it's in this context that we see verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now in ESV, the, the phrase food offered to idols, three four words, right? But in the, the original word, it's actually one word. One Greek word translated into food offered to idols. And actually, this word is coined in a Christian circle during the first century. And it's a combination of two words, idol and sacrifice, 
the verb. So the noun idol and the verb I sacrifice is combined to uh, refer to meat that's sacrificed to an idol, um, either eaten at a feast or sold in a market. And this is not a neutral word. It's actually a polemical, it's a negative, has a negative sense. And when the word idols used in the Bible, it's never in the positive. Um, these libertines, the strong ones, are saying all of us possess knowledge. And this is probably a quote that um, Apostle Paul heard. And they have this confidence. They all have this knowledge. And this knowledge, and we'll look at it more in detail next week, is probably referring to that there's only one true God. So these idols, you know what? They don't really exist. Therefore, you know what? As a Corinthian Christian, you are free to eat meat sacrificed to idols because idols are not really there. They're just images of things made of either wood, metal, or stone that people make and sell, etc. The passage reminds us that this sort of knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. There's a contrast in this kind of knowledge that leads to arrogance. Knowledge, correct knowledge that there's only one God, correct knowledge that the idols don't exist, correct knowledge and truth, but that leads to superiority and abuse of those who are weak. And it's contrast with that knowledge, that same knowledge in service of love. So arrogant knowledge versus serving knowledge of love. Now, knowledge is important, and if we know anything about Apostle Paul, he spends all of his letters that he writes, usually the first half to first major section, teaching proper theology. That's what he does again and again. And, but the Christian needs to be filled with love because love builds up. This, this word, building up, is a beautiful word, and we see this later on in the letter where the exercise of spiritual gifts, when it's properly used, serves to build up the body, edify the church. And the word um, puffs, puffed up is, uh, is also pretty interesting. This sort of knowledge, this kind of arrogant knowledge that looks down and bullying those who are weak in conscience, this, this knowledge puffs up. And this same word actually is used later on again when we go through the, the gifts of the Spirit how it's supposed to build up the body, um, it's translated in the famous chapter 13, love is not proud. That's the same word. But uh, in, in chapter 13, it's translated as not proud. Here it's translated as puffed up because it's supposed to build up. Proper knowledge is supposed to build up. In the beginning of the sermon series, we went over how the Corinthians were so consumed by and impressed and committed to this pursuit of knowledge and wisdom. But we, we were reminded how this, the wisdom of the world, the knowledge of the world was inferior to the wisdom of God. Yes, the world thinks of the wisdom of God as silly, foolishness, but it is the knowledge that saves this knowledge of Jesus Christ, Christ, Him crucified. 
we are to have proper knowledge and to grow. But Paul knows that love which is lacking knowledge will easily just turn to mushy sentimentality. However, here, what we are addressing here is knowledge that lacks love, degenerating into this sort of pharisaical arrogance. In verse 2, we are reminded, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to. Um, This knowing something, um, the verb is a perfect tense, um, referring to like has known, still knows, and owns what he knows. It refers to this sense of understanding that they know everything. Um, they have accumulated, they have perfected. They don't lack any knowledge. It has this kind of bold arrogance. I have arrived. But to those who think that he knows something, the response is he does not yet know as he ought to know. These libertines who had strong understanding, though perhaps right theology, they completely missed the point um, and practiced in a way that didn't align with the gospel truth. They were misapplying the foundational gospel. One wise person said, knowledge is a process of passing from the unconscious state of ignorance to the conscious state of ignorance. We know that knowledge at best is limited. And again, we will see when we go to 1 Corinthians 13, we we will learn and be reminded that knowledge not only passes away, but we see only dimly as in a mirror, and we at best know in part. For those of us who are studying For those of us who have studied, we will come to know. The more you study, the more you will know. Yes, we are learning something, but you will discover that we have far more things that we don't know answers to, and it humbles us. When a person thinks that he knows everything and comes to a point where they always have an answer, it's a sad reminder that they really haven't learned. This section closes with the verse, but... If anyone loves God, he is known by God. There's a shift here. Shift from kind of a static knowledge about things to a relational knowledge based on the other. He doesn't say, if one knows God, then dot, dot, dot. No, he says, if one loves God. As we saw in verse 1, we see again love uh, coming up in verse 3 here. Knowledge, gospel truth has to be translated to love. To really know God requires us to have a relationship with him, a love relationship with this God. And what really matters is love. Love that is based on truth, that builds up the community There is this two-part in verse 3. What's crucial is their love for God and being known by God. And we're reminded, we're brought to this place of divine initiative, and we learn about election here. 
This initiative and salvation comes from God and God alone, not from us. God who loved first. God who elects those he called and delivers from the power of sin and death. Therefore, you don't put so much weight on what we know, although that is important. What is far more important and what is far more primary is that he knows you and me, that he has called you to himself, that we get that. Because when we get that, we can't be arrogant. We can't have that kind of posture of haughtiness when we know that foundationally it's about being known by God who elects those who elects. So our conduct in relation to our Christian freedom must not be guided by our sense of superior knowledge, but this love for the other that is grounded by knowing that we are known by God himself. We know that knowledge is power. We hear that all the time, right? When, when you're in school, it's like knowledge is power, learn, continue to learn, gain in knowledge, read. We also know that knowledge is influence, and we've seen enough knowledge being used to intimidate misuse, abuse, coercing people, those who have knowledge to those who don't. But here we're reminded that the antithesis, the opposite of between knowledge and, it's not knowledge and versus ignorance, but knowledge and love. I said it before, knowledge without love is just pharisaical arrogance, but love without knowledge becomes mushy sentimentality, and we can't have that either. As we go through the sermon series titled Hum, Holiness, Unity, and Maturity, if we want to grow, if we want to mature, we have to look beyond our own personal interest, but for the interest of others. There's no other path toward maturity Apostle Paul is advocating two kinds of freedom. Next week we'll go deeper as we look at the rest of the chapter. But one is the absolute freedom in Christ, that we are free in Christ. But the second part is the part that is just as important. It's a freedom to restrict one's freedom for the sake of another brother or sister who might not have a strong conscience. Christian rights and liberties are meant to be displayed through love, in love. If you're a Christian here, I think you will agree with me that we are all prone to have a weak conscience, especially in certain areas of our lives. And you know what? As a Christian, we need to be committed to educate ourselves and strengthen our consciences to be more biblically based, and gospel-centered. So that means we can't just simply accept status quo. We need to read good, Bible-based, gospel-centered, God-honoring books to shape and transform 
our consciences that are fragile. It means we need to get into relationships of discipleship, mentorships, smaller groups, and be honest about these things and work through it honestly. And to go back to the issue of Christian liberty, what happens when we don't agree? Well, I think the important question is asking ourselves, in in what way am I using my knowledge that God has given me? Is it endangering or harming other Christians around who might be weaker? Is love guiding my knowledge? Is love guiding your knowledge in the way you are exercising? Or do you find yourself kind of heeding to that message of today, hey, self-actualization, if it's good for you, do it. What are we turning to to recalibrate our hearts and our minds? How are younger Christians looking at you? Are they encouraged by your choices? The Corinthian church is not the only church that wrestle with legalism and libertinism. Christian church has wrestled with these two extreme tendencies throughout its existence, and we still wrestle with it today because these are the two ends of the spectrum that we can kind of lean toward. Instead of wrestling with it, together we either err on the side of being legalistic or um, licentious. Legalism just turns everything into rules. It doesn't seek to understand principles and wrestle with it and apply it. Legalism just seeks an elaborate list of do's and don'ts, and as long as you you have that clear, you are content. But the challenge is people don't agree with those lists. You could be doing great in one community of believers and getting a great grade, but you move to a different community and you will realize that you're failing because they do not agree on the list. Legalism, it stifles freedom. It confuses our consciences and it prevents the power of the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. And on the other side of the uh, extreme, you have the, those who earn the side of being licentious or turn to libertinism, where everything is acceptable. Freedom is absolute. And you judge everything just according to your own conscience. And if your conscience says it's okay, then you're free to do it. Do you find yourself thinking that, hey, my conscience is clear, I'm okay? Or do you find yourself stopping from just ending there, but then ask, hey, how about that other brother? How about that other sister who is weaker in faith, just newer Christian? Would they be encouraged by seeing what I do? License says I can do what I want, when I want, with anyone I want, because I'm free in Christ. I'm forgiven from my sins, of my past, present, and future. God has forgiven it all, paid for it all, 
so I can do anything. It cheapens Christ, what he did on the cross. True freedom, biblical freedom, is discovering the liberating power of being placed in bondage to Jesus. That sounds antithetical. Freedom means bondage, bondage in Christ. Yes. It's no accident that Apostle Paul identifies himself as a servant, a slave, doulos, again and again, because that is true freedom. When you understand the creation design, that there is a creator, and we are his creation work, and this creator did not lord over others, but came to serve. And this is the kind of being that we are called to, created to worship and serve and be servant to. And when we get this calling correct and right, that he, this kind of God knows us, it releases us to love our fellow brothers and sisters. Not do things based on the list of rules and regulations, but based on the mandate to love and serve. It causes us to think about not just sins of commission, the wrong things, checking the list, but truly the sins of omission. Am I loving my neighbor? Because the boundary for not doing is pretty small. But the boundary for loving, am I loving my neighbor? There is no limit to that. And that's intentional by God. Brothers and sisters, how are we exercising the freedom that we have in Christ? Through our choices, are people around us brought closer to God? Through our choices and exercise of freedom, are Christians around us strengthened in their faith? Let's pray. Gracious and merciful God, we readily confess that we are not immune and we are exposed to these tendencies of legalism where we just prefer to have a list of what we should do or shouldn't do, or because we've consumed so much in this, we've been swimming in this water of self-actualization, God, that we confuse ourselves into thinking that as long as my conscience is clear, we are free to do whatever, and we in living such way, in thinking such thoughts, we have failed to understand the message of the gospel, what it means to be known by you and to love others. Forgive us, O Lord. God, we pray that as we continue to come before your word, would you show us how to use the freedom you've given us to build up 
to strengthen our brothers and sisters so that, Lord, you receive glory and your body is built up. Brothers and sisters, let's continue in prayer before the Lord.